she listens often to the sermons, I think uh, she was saying the other day. So if you're listening, happy Mother's Day. <laughs> We're going out to Surrey after this uh, every year. Usually, usually we end up having lobster, but I guess this year it's chicken. But that's all right. <laughs> we'll, we'll make do. <laughs> Chicken's cheaper this year. Chicken's cheaper this year, for sure. <laughs> in the summer of 1986, two ships collided in the Black Sea off the coast of Russia. Hundreds of passengers died as they were hurled into the icy waters below. News of the disaster was further darkened when an investigation revealed the cause of the accident. It wasn't a technological problem like radar malfunction. It wasn't something like fog either, the cause was human stubbornness. Each captain was aware of the other ship's presence, and each captain was aware that they were on a collision course. And both of them could have steered clear, but neither of them was willing to give way to the other. They were both too proud to yield to the first one. By the time they came to their senses and realized the consequences of their actions, it was too late. Last week I ended by saying not to forget what we studied because everything today is contingent on what we studied last week. Now, that wasn't really fair because if any of you had a crazy week like I did, um, you probably don't remember a lot. I barely remember what I preached about last week. Uh, I just wrote a block exam, so I think it would be worth a quick 30-second review of what we studied last week. Uh, just to get us all on the same page, myself included, um, just to kind of get us in the game. So what we learned last week is that our conduct matters as Christians. It matters because our actions and our behavior testify to the world around us about Jesus. It matters because it verifies that the Holy Spirit is indeed at work in our lives. And it matters because our conduct can create unity in the church. Paul says to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what we studied last week. But while last week's passage and this week's are split into different chapters, it's all part of the same thought process. And it's so important to remember that our contact matters and why it matters as we go into this new passage today. As Paul kind of reveals the key of everything he was trying to get at here. Um, if you didn't know this, uh, chapter and verse numbers were actually added into the Bible in the last thousand years. Before that, you just kind of had to go through and hope you could find what you were looking for. And so it was kind of a convenience addition. There's actually a joke that this guy was riding on a horse when he was doing it and just kind of put them wherever um, as he was bumping along the road. And, and sometimes when you're reading through, you kind of get the idea that, yeah, no, this doesn't make sense the way they break it up. Um, but I want you to know that this was all one big thought process, or one main idea together. The heart of the matter that Paul was speaking to was that the Philippians had a humility problem. So when we come into this new passage, after the passage we studied last week, he says, Therefore, therefore, because our conduct matters, because it testifies to the world around us about Jesus, because it verifies that the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives, and because it can unify or divide the church, be humble like Jesus. And that's the heart of what we're going to look at today, is humility. 
Humility can be a bitter pill to swallow, but pride and selfishness are at the root of most of the problems faced in the world. So Paul calls us to follow not just any example, but the highest example of Jesus. Because if the Son of God can embrace humility, then so can we. If you have your Bible with you, this is going to be chapter 2. We finally got through chapter 1 of Philippians. Uh, it's going to be verses 1 through 11. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as of Jesus Christ, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So let's go back to that first verse for a minute. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing of the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, these are something called first-class conditions in Greek. And what that means is that even though he's using the word if here, that's how we're translating it, they're actually speaking of certainties. He's not saying this might be the case. He's saying this is the case. It should be translated since. Since you have encouragement from being united in Christ, since you have incur a comfort from his love, because they are true, because they have encouragement from unity, because they have comfort from his love, because they have common sharing in the spirit, and all of these things, because it's true, make his joy complete. These things are true, it indeed is the case, and there's no room for dispute. What he's doing is appealing on the basis of that which they have received from the Holy Spirit. They've all been united with Christ in his death in baptism. And now they are filled with his love as a result. And this love should result in spiritual unity. One of the Spirit's ministries is to produce in every believer a concern and love for members of God's family. And this is all meant to be a motivation or a basis for what he's calling them to in verse 2. Because this is all true, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, and being one in spirit and of mind. His joy will only be complete if these appeals were responded to, and adjustments needed to be made in the church's domestic life as God's family. And, and you'll notice in that verse this kind of a piling up of expressions that all relate to church unity. Uh, being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. And that repetition is intentional. It's, 
It leaves no room for doubt as to what God's uh, desire is and what Paul's desire is for the Philippians. And these first four verses, they're written in a Greek style called homonoia. Uh, I had to practice saying that one. I always do. Um, anyway, it's a Greek type of speech which advocates for harmony and unity among the people who are listening, the hearers or the, the respondents, I guess. And that's kind of the goal of this whole section at the very start of Philippians 2, is that they would find unity through humility and through putting others first in all matters of their lives. And I don't think there's anything that is more important and insisted on in the New Testament as the importance of harmony among Christians. As I read last week, Jesus' prayer in the garden was that we would all be one, because through our unity, the world will come to know Jesus. And, and so you kind of get the, uh, the idea of the importance of this through Scripture. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And the ethical terms in this verse kind of expose the spiritual issues that were going on in the heart of the church. You'll probably remember when I was in the first chapter, I kind of said, you know, about how the Philippians were really a church that should have been looked up to by the other Christians, and they were, had a lot going for them. But I also said, that doesn't mean that they're perfect. Um, no one's perfect. Um, and when it comes to the early churches, for sure. Uh, and, and, and they had issues, too. And so we kind of start to finally get past this introductory, introductory section and start to see Paul addressing some of these issues. So when he says, do nothing at a selfish ambition, that Greek word for selfish ambition is the same word that was used in Philippians 1.17, which was two weeks ago. Uh, if you remember, when he was talking about these people who were preaching with bad motives, um, and basically they had something out for Paul, but they were still preaching the gospel. So God, or Paul said, you know, it's still good because they're preaching the gospel, but their motives are bad. They're preaching it as selfish ambition. And that's the same word he uses here. So after those comments before about people who were using his imprisonment for their own advantage, it must have been pretty humbling for the Philippians to hear Paul tell them not to do anything out of selfish ambition either. We aren't supposed to achieve things by trying to outstrip each other. What we do is to be to maintain the truth and to glorify God. But this is something that is often violated in the church and among Christians. Because it's not always intentional, I don't think. But often you see churches kind of trying to outdo each other. Um, and, and maybe it's not even them as much as the people who are going to the churches saying, you know, well, this church has really good sermons, but this church has really good music. This church has this, and this church has that. And, and you kind of see almost like a competition as to who can be better. But that's not what we're supposed to be like. Now, this isn't new. The disciples did the same thing. So we know that it's, it's something that is part of humanity and, and a sinful nature. The disciples argued about who was the greatest disciple just a few feet behind Jesus, which clearly they didn't get it yet because that was not a very bright thing to do. But I think this does continue today as well, and I think that's kind of the idea of what Paul's talking to here. It, it kind of can become the secret aim, maybe even secret to themselves, 
to outdo other people and, and be the best, uh, and, and that's wrong. There's, there's no holiness to be found in attempting to outdo others. And the idea here in this passage is someone who has a desire to attract attention to themselves, to honor themselves, and to win praise, to make themselves the object of attention for the purpose of being noticed. And this command forbids us from doing this because the self is not to be the focus of the church. Instead, we are to be humble, treating each other as more important than ourselves. And this begins with our relationship with God, because humility before God is the beginning of humility in our lives and in our relationships with each other. But that humility is so key. 1 Peter 5, verses 5 to 6 says, All of you clothe yourselves in humility towards one another, for God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he might exalt you at the proper time. We're called to be a humble people. Verse 4, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And this is kind of interesting. Um, so we're not supposed to let our care and attention be completely on our own lives and our own concerns. We should be looking to each other and taking care of each other as a church family. Now, that doesn't mean that we're supposed to be uh, forcing ourselves into other people's private business. Now, there's times when we have to be there for each other, but there are still matters which are, of course, private. And it's not necessarily our job to force ourselves into people's private business. What it is really about is not putting your business and your needs and your desires above others, potentially to their detriment. And the Greek here makes this individual, and I think the New King James actually translates it better. It says, let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. And you'll notice the key difference is that it says, each of you. And that's close to the original Greek, because it's the duty of everyone in this. No one is at liberty to live for themselves any longer and disregard the need of others in the body. We're not supposed to be so preoccupied with our own concerns and even with the cultivation of our own spiritual life that we miss out on the concerns and the spiritual lives of others who might need our help. Then in verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And this kind of starts this famous section of scripture. This is the heart of this whole passage. Have the same mindset as Jesus. And what follows this is what we believe to be the oldest hymn that we have recorded. This hymn was written before Paul wrote this letter. Verses 5 to 8 says, Who being in very nature God, referring to Jesus, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And this reference is really meant to reinforce the duty of humility that we have as Christians, because Jesus is the absolute highest example that can be given of humility. And of course, as Christians, we're called to live like him. 
This hymn, this example of the humility of Jesus, it illustrates and confirms everything that Paul has said about humility prior to this. We're supposed to make Jesus our model and in all our ways shape our lives in line with the example he gave us. And that example is one of selfless humility. The importance of this quote by Paul, this hymn, rests on the fact that Jesus is equal with God. Because Jesus was divine, his consent to become a man was the most remarkable of all possible acts of humiliation. He is in very essence God. But he decided to put that aside and embrace humility instead. Despite the fact that he was equal with God, he did not cling to that equality. He did not cling to his station. He willingly set it aside and became a man. He surrendered his right to manifest himself as the God of all splendor and glory. And when it says that he made himself nothing, the literal translation of the Greek is that he emptied himself. It's like there's a glass that, that contains his station and his power and authority. He willingly poured it out and emptied himself. Now, again, he was still totally God. So could he have decided to refill the glass? Sure. But he poured it out, and he didn't. He emptied himself. He laid aside his rank and dignity. It's almost... The only comparison I could think of in human terms is if the queen decided to renounce the throne and live homeless on the streets. And that's not even close to a comparison of the immensity of this sacrifice by Jesus. Now, because he also was fully human, because he became a man, he had to become obedient to the law, and he did. He humbled himself and made himself a servant or slave, obedient to God's will and purpose. He obeyed even when his obedience resulted in his death. You know, I think it's easy for someone to be cheerfully obedient when there's no danger to yourself, but it's not so easy when your obedience might result in you being hurt or killed. But he was obedient even in that. He, he subjected himself to the torture of the cross. And that was not a quick or easy death, but a lingering, painful, and humiliating execution, fit for only the worst of criminals. He knew that this would be the cost of obedience and humility. And yet he remained obedient until the very end. He remained humble. Despite being in very nature God, with God, he humbled himself and became obedient to the law as a man, even when it results in his painful death and public humiliation. Verse 9 to 11 says, Therefore, and there's that word therefore again, because he humbled himself, because he became a servant, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because he humbled himself, because he became a servant, God exalted him. I think I've read this passage here before, but there's a scene in Revelation 5 where the Lamb appears and is able to open this scroll, and then you see everyone in heaven worshiping the Lamb. He's worthy to open the scroll because he purchased for God a kingdom of priests with his own blood. So because of that, you see this picture of everyone worshiping him. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
And Jesus is the ultimate example of humility that we are called to follow. If the Son of God can give up his position and authority and empty himself to come to earth as a man and die for us, if he can embrace that kind of humility for our sakes, I think that we can embrace humility as well for his. So with all of that said, what does it look like to be humble like Jesus? For us today, first, being humble like Jesus means letting go. Letting go is not something that is easy, and it's not something that we are typically good at. I know I'm not good at it. Most of us, at least to some level, have a desire to be right. We get passionate about things, and that's good. We should be passionate about things. It means that we care. It's good to care about things in life. But the problem is that sometimes we can get so focused and zoomed in on what matters to us that we can forget about the other people around us as well and the things that they care about and the importance of our relationships with them. It can't always be about us and what we want and being right. And sometimes we let our passion and pride get in the way of remembering that. And sometimes I think it's very easy as people, when we care about things, to become selfish or, or hold grudges. But being humble like Jesus means letting go of all that. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And because we are human, because we are still living in a broken world, that doesn't mean that the other person is always going to take the initiative. And we need to be ready for that. Sometimes being humble like Jesus means being the bigger person. Sometimes being humble means that even if you are absolutely sure that you are right about something, you might still be wrong. Because you can definitely be right for the wrong reasons, and you can also be wrong for the right reasons. And when we are wrong, even if we think we are right, but our actions are causing division or hurting people, we need to be ready to recognize that that's what's happened. I didn't want to quote this because I've been trying to avoid cross-referencing verses in Philippians because we're going to cover them. Um, I don't want to have spoilers, I guess. Um, but I'm, I'm going to make an exception today. Philippians 3, uh, Paul's talking about this prize that we're racing towards. And he says, Brothers, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. And I think this is important to, to remember when we're talking about things that we're passionate about, is that at the end of the day, we're pressing towards a goal. And a big part of the goal for the church is unity. Because through our unity, the world will know Jesus. So it's important, it's really important that we work together as a body to achieve unity, to be humble like Jesus, and to achieve the unity that he desired to see in the church. We need to be ready and willing to let go. Second, being humble like Jesus means putting others first. And this can be hard as well, um, because, you know, it's very easy for us to focus on the injustice in our own lives, I know that I do this as well. Um, you know, sometimes before you even realize it, what either comes out of your mouth or what's going in your head is, but what about me? And the problem with that as a church is that 
we need to be continually thinking about and working to help others. We are meant to be the hands and feet of Jesus on earth. And in Matthew 2.17, Jesus said, Healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. The thing about being the hands and feet of Jesus is that we're supposed to be emulating his example. And it's hard for us to be following his example in this verse if we're focused on ourselves, our own needs and our own desires, because we are saved. Of course, this doesn't mean that nothing matters after we're saved and that we don't matter and our concerns don't matter. That's not what I mean. <laughs> Still matters. But it does mean that we're called to a higher standard to put others first. Once we are in Jesus, once we are saved, it can't be all about us anymore. That, that's the way the world lives. We don't do that anymore, or we shouldn't be. We're called to follow Jesus' example. How did Jesus put others first? He set aside his station and power as God and became a man, literally dying to pay for every single terrible thing that any of us has ever done. Did he put the needs of others above his own? Yes, definitely. Romans 12.10 says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And I, I always kind of thought that was fun, the way they say outdo one another. It almost sounds like we're having a competition to see who can treat each other better or who can put other people's needs ahead of their own most. Uh, who can be the humblest. But it's a cool picture because as Jesus increases in us and in our lives, by nature we should be decreasing. Being humble like Jesus means putting others first. And then third, being humble like Jesus means being obedient to God. And I think this can be very hard, too. You know, for Jesus, he humbled himself by not just becoming a man, but by becoming obedient to God's will, which led to his death and humiliation on the cross. For the Son of God, that was certainly humility. Now, for us, we may not be called to die on a cross physically, but we are called to humility through obedience as well. And the biggest problem with us as humans is that God made us very intelligent creatures. And the problem with being intelligent is that we think we know what's best for us. But the problem is, because we live in a sinful and broken world, because we're sinful and broken people by nature, often what we think is good for us is in fact harmful. Being obedient is not always easy, and by no means do I intend to minimize that struggle that we all face in life. But at the end of the day, being obedient to Scripture and being obedient to the Holy Spirit is the ultimate symbol of humility in your life. Because what you were saying is that my needs and desires are second and God is first. Everything Jesus did, every way in which he humbled himself, and in everything he ever said, it was always, always rooted in Scripture and God's will. That is ultimately what we submit ourselves to in humility. And we can't really do that unless we know God's word and are listening for his voice and direction. Being humble like Jesus means being obedient to God. So in conclusion, there are so many reasons why humility is important as followers of Jesus. 
Last week we were called to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our behavior and our actions, it matters immensely as Christians because the world is watching us. They see us when we reflect Jesus, but they also see us when we don't. They also see us when we fall short of his example, and people remember. When I began today, I read a story about two ship captains. Both knew that they were on a collision course, but both were too stubborn to change course. Their actions caused disaster and the loss of many lives because they were too stubborn and proud. They wouldn't humble themselves to save lives. Our actions have the same implications because Jesus said when we're united that the world will know him and we find unity through humility, through being humble like Jesus. Being humble like Jesus means letting go of our selfishness and grudges, even when it's hard, even when we're right. Being humble like Jesus means putting others first, even when we don't think they deserve it. And being humble like Jesus means being obedient to God's word and the calling of the Spirit, wherever that takes you. My prayer for all of us today, as we leave here, is that we can embrace humility in our daily lives, and in our interactions, so that we can find that unity together that will bring the world and the community around us to Jesus. Father God, I thank you for this day. I thank you most of all for the sacrifice of your son Jesus on the cross for our sins. I thank you that he was willing to humble himself and set aside his power and authority for us. And I just ask that as we go out into the world this week, that you would help us to be lights for you. That you, would be help, that you would help us to empty ourselves and be humble and emulate the example that you've given us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.